1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Natalie Bogwalker is the founder and director of Wild Abundance, where she teaches carpentry, permaculture, primitive skills, and so much more. I met Natalie when we teamed up for her online high tanning class, and she has continued to blow my mind since then. I'm currently in the middle of her online gardening course, and I feel like a kid in a candy store with all of the new skills that I'm learning. In this episode of Anchored, we sit down to discuss her incredible journey from academia to accomplished outdoors woman, permaculture, living in community, PETA, and more. Be sure to stay tuned because there is a surprise waiting for you in the intermission. I was born in Vancouver, Washington. So the Vancouver in the US, not in Canada. And then I lived for a short time in Idaho, then moved back to Washington State. And that's where I grew up was Washington State. And it was really fabulous because I grew up, I was mostly in the country and had access to a lot of wild land. Okay. So you come from an outdoorsy family? They're not really outdoorsy, but we lived in the country. So when you're a kid in the country, you, if you want to be, you get to explore, even if your parents aren't particularly outdoorsy. And my, my godmother, who's also my aunt is a backpacker and stuff. And so she would take me backpacking and, and really got me appreciating the outdoors. And my mom was really into plants. And so like my first wild foods I learned from my mom, which was very awesome. Do you remember what about the outdoors in particular was so interesting to you? What drew you in? I just loved everything about being outside and I didn't like much about being inside. <laughs> I, just, I loved I loved plants. I loved just the adventure and using my body and I loved I loved the rain, I loved the sun on my skin, and I loved riding my bike. And I'm I'm just a very physical person and and just being outdoors just did it for me and just the air. And when I was a teenager, I did this program called Northwest Youth Corps where teenagers have a summer job building trails. And that was pretty formative for me. So we like 
did these epic hikes into base camps and then and then worked on trails and learned some about the plants and stuff too. And then it just was and used our bodies a bunch. And also introduced me to a lot of people who were not the people who lived in my little country town in Washington state, like just alternative culture, which was really huge for me. Did you end up going to college? Yeah, I went to school. So I started out studying genetic engineering of all things, because I wanted to learn or I wanted to help find a cure for AIDS. And I wanted to do things like engineer packaging that wasn't environmentally destructive. And they're they're just, I was totally naive about the evils of genetic engineering at that point. And I think the world was pretty naive about it at that point too. But then I um, got hit by a car while I was riding my bike and it was really bad. <laughs> I was on the, on the roof of the car for like 50 feet until the old lady who hit me finally slammed on her brakes. And then I flew into a telephone pole and then I finally hit the ground. Oh, and I'd like broken her windshield with my helmet. It was, it was all very dramatic. Somehow I didn't break any bones, but I did mess up my spine and some other stuff. But it, I actually say that it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Like it was this amazing initiation. Like there's all these initiations that happen in traditional cultures all over the world. And I think that sometimes if you don't get initiated, the initiation finds you. And I think that's what happened. And my life flashed before my eyes. I'm like, what am I doing with my one and precious life? And so I quit college. I was at the time I was um, a junior in college and I was 19 years old, I was like fast track to getting my PhD and my doctorate and all this, or my PhD and my MD. And then I was just like, I'm not going to do this. And so I went traveling and I just learned a lot. And then I went back to school for ecological agriculture and studied that when I went back. And that's part of what I do now because I run this online gardening school and a lot of the content at Wild Abundance has to do with, with, with organic agriculture. And so that was a piece of it. But I ended up um, living I, various things with all this travel. I traveled all over the place. And then I ended up getting really sick when I was living in Guatemala. And um, mm, I moved Same. <laughs> that water I, is horrible. Yeah, it has bad news. Yeah, it was like the first spring rains and like I was like standing under a waterfall and I guess some got in my mouth. Similar story, it sounds like. And um, my parents were living in, I was like 21 and my parents were living in, or 22, I guess. My parents were living in Georgia. And so I moved in with them for a short time. And then I just fell in love with the South. And the amazing ecology of the South. And like, it, it, I started like teaching plant classes at some point within all of that. Like I got really into wild foods, really into wild foods. And um, I was a cook too. I had this whole catering, organic food catering business thing. And, and one of my, one of the people who I worked with was, was an ecologist and botanist. And he got me really into, into plants. Again, after my mom got me into plants and I was like, oh, whatever, that's boring. And then when I when I was an adult, I got re-excited about it. So I stayed in the Southeast and I sent an email to everyone I knew and I said, I really want to live in community. That's something I discovered when I was traveling. 
And I want to live in the South because I am so I'm like smitten with the ecology and with the plant diversity. And so somebody wrote me back and was like, there's this new community called Wild Roots and they are focused especially on foraging. And so I went there and I went to my first primitive skills gathering with those folks. And that was 19 years ago. I just totally fell in love and I tanned my first deer hide during that very first gathering. This, this guy, Chris Manis was my teacher and I stayed up until five in the morning smoking that hide in like a huge rainstorm because the Southeast, the, the mountains of the Southeast have a lot of rain <laughs> and, um, under tarp. And yeah, I just fell in love. And then I lived very primitively in a various shelters at first in a tent and then in a bark longhouse that I built with some other folks. And we cooked all of our food on fire and we made all of our fire by friction and we would get all of our water from the spring and from the Creek. And we, yeah, we just were really hardcore <laughs> for, so I, I lived for five years. I have questions. I'm going to back you right up. So, okay. The first, the first one is community. I'm going to be totally honest with you. As soon as I hear somebody say that they wanted to live in community, my brain does this horrible thing where I just assume it's like orgies and drugs and this crazy, wild, free spirited life. Is that what community is? Or am I watching too many movies? I think you're definitely watching too many movies. I mean, I'm sure that there are some places that are like that. And, but this one was not like that. I, I, and I have lived in several different communities and I, and now I live in like a very, I don't know if you'd call it an unintentional community or what, but basically a bunch of us bought a big chunk of land and then divided it up. So, and added a bunch of deed restrictions. So we basically, we like, like our neighbors and we can get along with them and we each own our own piece of land, which is really nice. And our kids play together and stuff like that. But, um, but back in the day, what happened was this woman bought this piece of land and just wanted people to live wild on it, you know, and, and practice primitive skills and this sort of thing. There definitely weren't orgies. Um, but definitely, it definitely attracted a lot of folks who were very unconventional and yeah, I mean, it was, it was really interesting to meet a lot of these people. I mean, when you, when you're into primitive skills and you're into like wild living, it definitely can attract people who are rejected from conventional culture. So there's definitely, there's definitely some odd birds, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was only like five of us and we just, I don't know why it was called a community basically because we all lived on land together. Yeah. Well, you know what, when I used to guide on the Dean, there was also a community of landowners that had chipped into a piece of property and they all owned their own lots and liked each other. And then I believe how they, they had it arranged was you couldn't sell the property. Once you died, you lost your property. And then the last man standing gets the, pro- gets the property Whoa. or something like that. Yeah. So, but how does somebody in, in today's age decide, I want to live in a community, which is a totally fair and valid desire, you know, especially for camaraderie and, and also as a, as a mother, you know, it takes a village. How does somebody go about living in a community? Do you just get online? 
So there's, and I'm not part of this because we we aren't, we are definitely not an intentional community. I mean, some of these communities, they're income sharing, like they take all of their money and pool them. We're not like that. Like we are more standard American, I guess for, well, not really at all, (laughs) kind of in a way, but we're not, we're not like all living in communal houses or something like that. But there are a lot of awesome communities that are listed on the Federation of Intentional Communities website. So that's a place for people to go. And then there's an, so that's the FIC. And then there's something else called the FEC and that's the Federation of Egalitarian Communities. And those are the income sharing communities. And I, I, in my younger years, I traveled and checked out a lot of different communities and found out a lot just what I liked and what I didn't like about different ones. And it was really interesting. I lived for a short time at the Twin Oaks community in Virginia, which is a straight up commune. It is a hundred people, they all like pool all their resources. They make hammocks and tofu. And um, at the time they were indexing books was how they, how they made their income. And it was pretty fascinating. And there was definitely some polyamory going on, but yeah. And it was, it was really amazing. And actually living there was part of what sparked me for, it was, it was after I'd quit school and went traveling. It was just exploring so many things and being there was part of what sparked me to go to school, to learn farming because there were all these older people and not very many young people who knew anything about growing food. And that seemed like a really important part of being alive and of living in community is being able to grow your own food. So that's something that has always been, I think, really a core driving thing for me is, is like self-sufficiency. And so whether it's like gathering wild foods or whether it's tanning deer hides or whether it's learning about permaculture and teaching permaculture or just gardening, like the, or making my own shoes or whatever, clothes, it's like that self-sufficiency or inter- dependency, intersufficiency, or however you want to call it, because I don't want to just do it all on my own because that's pretty boring and hard. But, um, but that's been like a, a big, a big theme since I was a teenager. Yeah. This is so, I, I find your life very fascinating. I find your personality fascinating. So I'm going to definitely ask you some questions as we go through your timeline. Let's get into how you made a living then. Did you start teaching for somebody else? I mean, now for people listening who don't know you, you run this wonderful school called Wild Abundance, which we'll talk about later. But how did that all start? So I I was cooking. I did, I did like when I went to school for organic agriculture, I realized quickly when we did these farm tours that I never wanted to try to scrape my money, scrape my living together as an organic farmer, because it just seemed like back break labor and not something I wanted to do. And so I decided to go the direction of cooking the food and serving the food rather than growing the food for my money and then growing the food in a garden for myself and to supplement the catering to provide food for some of the catering gigs. And so some friends and I started a cooperative, I was so into cooperatives at the time, a cooperative catering company. And then I ended up working as a, as a cook at a retreat center, Brighton Bush Hot Springs, in Oregon. And then I moved here. I did some catering. And then when I was living at Wild Roots, I I just didn't need much money at all. I made a little bit of money selling books at events 
and doing some catering and doing some landscaping. And then I started selling crafts. So I would make tulip poplar baskets and I, my mom Wait, taught what, what, what did you make? Oh, so there's, there's a, there's a tree here called tulip poplar and oh. it, you can peel the bark and the native people here did it all the time. You can peel the bark and you can use it to build with. And you can also use it to make these basically bark buckets. So I would make that basically look like a French fry box. Like they have this eye at the bottom and they're um, sewn together typically with, um, with hemlock, the inner bark of hemlock or with the inner bark of hickory. And so I would make these baskets and I would make nature inspired jewelry. For a while I had a gig like making cordage for a, natural inspired jeweler. So I would take nettle fiber and, um, tulip poplar inner bark fiber and buckskin and make, I would get like, you know, $4 a foot or whatever. It was great. And so I did, I did a lot of crafts. And then at a certain point I got into relationship with this person who was a carpenter and I'd been taking a lot of natural building classes. And so I became his carpenter's assistant. And so that was really fascinating for me because I'm always really into making stuff. And my mom taught me to make baskets when I was like four. And so the baskets kept getting bigger and then they became houses and like bark lodges and stuff like that and long houses. And so, um, yeah, I had been living in a bark longhouse and then he helped me build my first tiny house, which was like, I don't know, 16 years ago, 17 years ago. And I did straw clay walls, which is a natural building technique using straw and clay. And then he abandoned the project at some point. And I was like, oh no, now I have to do it. And I was so mad at him for leaving. And then I was like, oh, I'm good at this. So I could do this carpentry thing pretty well. And so I finished my little tiny house and I continued to help him on jobs and really got pretty good at building. And I've, I've always liked math, hence the engineering thing and building things. So then, then I made money building things. And then at some point I messed up my wrists. And so I couldn't make crafts and I couldn't do carpentry. And so I started teaching Oh, and in there, I forgot, I started this event called the Firefly Gathering, which is a primitive skills. It was the first, well, I don't know if that's totally true. It was the, it was the first very large primitive skills gathering to be started by a woman in the U.S., which is Robin Blankenship ran the Earth Nat Gathering, which is awesome, but it was a little smaller. And the Firefly Gathering became the biggest, at one point, it was the biggest primitive skills or earth skills gathering in the US, which it was like a thousand people. And there were like, I don't know, I think 150 classes offered over a four day period of time, you know, that we all organized this big crew of people, like a hundred work traders. And it was, it was an epic thing. And so that was kind of the seed of wild abundance was me starting this, I guess, going from catering, you know, you're in the kitchen, you're running a kitchen with all these people making all this food. And then running an event. And I used to, for a while, I forgot I worked for nonprofits for a while and did like, I was the assistant director of the Sonoran desert coalition for a short while and did random canvassing, (laughs) knocking on doors, asking for money for 
serious environmental causes. So all of these things would have would have contributed to your business sense, right? I'm just listening to all the different things that you that you dabbled in and the skills, the experience that would very much explain the people skills because I think you have excellent people skills and you're very charismatic. You come through great on camera. Um, It's all kind of coming together now. The pieces are starting to fall into place. So what about the school then? How did the school, you you just just decided by yourself to start a school or did you take some of the people from the Firefly, what was it called? The Firefly Gathering? Firefly Gathering. Yeah. And it still exists. I don't run it anymore, but it still exists. But um, what did I do? I, so when I was running the Firefly Gathering, it was very fulfilling and I wanted to have more contact with students and more of that fulfillment instead of just like building up to this one four day event each year to have that throughout the year. And so I started teaching classes under the name Wild Abundance, which was actually the name of one of my catering companies. And um, because I was doing some wild foods catering. And so at first I was teaching high tanning and wild foods. Those were, those were what I started with. And it was just me teaching and me running the whole thing. And then, and then it became an LLC, which is a type of business in the U S and then I started hiring folks to teach, to guest teach, and also to do the administration. Yeah, can you tell us all the cl- all the classes? Obviously, the high tanning. So you're our high tanning instructor, which is why I fall in. The- That's why I feel I know you so well. I mean, I've watched you in over sixty chapters. Uh, but so there's high tanning, obviously gar- gardenings, small houses or tiny houses, which I cannot wait to talk to you about. What else do you guys teach on location? Well, the tiny house class is a big one, and then we do a wild crafting class. Wild crafting and medicine making. And that is really sweet. And we offer that twice a year. We do. And and that class, I mean, it's crazy how much they learn, the students learn in four days. I mean, we, we've, we have some longer classes. We teach a permaculture design certification course, and that is a longer class. That's 10 days. And what is that? So permaculture is this idea of being able to create a permanent culture. So it comes from the idea that, you know, a lot of people think of humans as like, you know, pretty destructive to nature. Some people don't, but some people do. And the idea is that humans can be an integral part of nature and can like create systems that are regenerative and that don't pollute and don't screw up the earth and, and don't, damage the soil, but actually regenerate all of those systems. So that's what permaculture is. And so permaculture design is taking the principles of permaculture and applying them usually to a landscape, although it can also be done to apply the the principles of permaculture to um, a business or to any sort of system. But typically what we teach is landscape design within that permaculture idea, which, which a lot of that is um, edible landscaping and perennial use of perennial plants, but also annual gardening. It sounds like a really fancy way of saying homesteading and responsibly living off the land. Yeah, it's, it is. it is, And it's specifically like the principles by which, by which permaculture is governed, which there's like 25 of them or something. And they come from observing nature. 
And so that's kind of the difference rather than there being this like, okay, we're going to, to subjugate and dominate this whole area and, and bend it to our will. It's like, let's look to nature and see how nature does things and use that as um, a guiding light for how we choose to place things, for example. So like one permaculture principle is stacking functions. So what that means is any element in a design, whether it be a chicken coop or whether it be a building to put solar panels on, it needs to serve multiple functions. And so, for example, I just put up this shed, like I was thinking about, we were going to go solar. And so we were thinking about buying this like solar stand, but it cost like $5,000 and it had so much concrete. And we're like, you know, I wonder if we could just build like a pole barn shed because they, they won't work on the house for various reasons. And so, or on the, on the classroom. And so we put this, we put this structure up and basically it's like another classroom, which is really awesome. So it's like serving the function of, instead of just this unifunctional element. It's a pole barn that has a space underneath that we can have classes and community gatherings and stuff like that. And with women's carpentry, we just need lots of places to have different like tool stations. And then it also is providing us with electricity. So yeah, it's like having multiple functions is one of the classic examples, but there's a bunch of examples and the permaculture principles are really cool. And like, if you go around a landscape that's designed in that way, it's really cool because you can see the intentionality going on there. What else do you offer? Well, we offer women's rewilding, which is very fun. (laughs) What is that? Sounds exciting. Yeah, it's it's really exciting. It's funny because I don't I I just teach for like a quarter of it or something, but I, I end up going and hanging out for most of the class because it's just so sweet and fun. And and what is rewilding? It makes me want to pour a margarita and get ready to party. What, what happens? <laughs> well, the idea is that like we humans are not living a life that we evolved to live. Staring in, sitting, staring at a computer, especially now in COVID times, sitting, staring at a computer all day, or sitting in a car driving, or um, even sitting on a couch watching TV. None of this is anything that our body evolved to do. And we've all become very addicted to these things and, and swiping on our phone, doing all these things. And the idea is that our bodies evolved to be hunter gatherers which I mean, you, I'm sure are familiar with this and so wild yourself in so many ways. I'm just totally admire your work. So rewilding is taking our bodies and engaging them in things that our ancestors did. And so one of those things might be high tanning. One of those things might be making a basket. One of those things might be harvesting wild foods and cooking them. There's all sorts of things. And with women, and we do open it up to to other genders as well. But for women, I think that there's this like sweetness of coming together and practicing these skills and talking and really like sharing deeply. And also some of these activities that we do as modern humans, it's not just the activities that we do, but it's also our language and it's the way that we think. And there's so many things about civilization and about capitalism and about like just the way that the world is right now that is not healthy. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think really, really makes us into, into people who need to go and see a therapist pretty frequently. <laughs> so I think that the idea is to like kind of peel back some of those layers and feel what our true wild self is like. And, um, you know, I mean, I think most of us have had the experience of just like staring at a fire and what that does and what that open can open up inside of us. Like it just feels really right and it feels really sweet. And so that's what it's about. It's about, it's about opening ourselves to our, to our own wildness. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you know, it's funny because, you hear the argument from the guys, right? How would they feel if it was men's only? And look, I'm I'm all for men's only, yeah. by the way. I think it's totally natural. But as communities, I, I know that there is this real raw connection that happens when it is just women. It's cool in the carpentry classes, like there's these women who are in their 60s and they weren't allowed to take woodshop in middle school or high school. And they're just like, I mean, sometimes in the closing circles, they're crying. Like they're just so happy to feel that empowerment and be around other women. I've heard that this happens in men only spaces too. Like there's a certain amount of like letting your guard down. I think that happens. Yeah. It feels like with carpentry, it's always been for me anyway, owning a cabin. It's always been that one thing, even though I know the men in my life respect the hell out of me and and love me and, and they want the best for me. There's still that thing where I'm going, can I help put the roof up? Well, yeah, go stain the boards. <laughs> <laughs> I'm watching what they're doing and I'm going, I can do all of those things that you're doing. And I can probably do them sober too. <laughs> you know, they come drinking beer and stuff. And so I, I know for me, it's always been, it's kind of the final piece in my life of, of my passions, the things that I want to do that I haven't been able to do by hand yet. And that's why I want to talk to you about the tiny houses. Yeah. Is that, is that what the class is called? Tiny houses? Yeah. It's the tiny house and natural building class. Is it able, is it possible to do it online or does it no, have to be done in person? That is a very good question. So we have been doing it in person for, I think, nine years at this point. And this year we are offering an online version. So that's going yes. to, that's going to become available in July. We, Sign we me up. It, can you tell, just tell, tell us all about it. So what do you, this is not a sales pitch, by the way, everybody, I had no idea this is happening. So I genuinely want to hear what the deal is. So, um, obviously it's online. So is it capped out or can anybody join? I understand joining at a certain time so that you can have certain support, yeah. but, um, any idea on pricing or any of that stuff? We are capping it, but it's not a super small cap. And that's just so that we can give the students, you know, the, the attention that they need to get. Yeah. Um, and what was your, Oh yeah. The pricing we, it's probably going to be, so our in-person class is 1600 is the bottom of, we do a sliding scale so that anyone who, who wants to should be able to afford it. Um, but the bottom of the sliding scale for the in-person is 1600 and the online class, I'm not going to make a commitment because we haven't we haven't totally nailed it down because we're launching it in July, but I sense it's going to be under five hundred bucks and probably significantly under five hundred bucks. So it's pretty it's pretty accessible. And then what about materials? So is it a timber thing, or I, I remember you saying something about clay and yeah, what's it made so out of? 
so with with our online tiny house class, well, I'll I'll talk about both interchangeably. So the in person class, we do natural building techniques and we do conventional building techniques. So during that class, folks learn. We divide into two groups, and one group does a build that's a mobile tiny house, and that's pretty much completely conventional because it has to be really light. <laughs> in weight. And so they learn how to totally frame and, um, and sheath and put windows in and roof on a mobile tiny house. And then the other group frames and she's a permanent tiny house. And that's usually done with all rough sawn local lumber. And then we have classes that are specifically about natural building. So this year we're going to be doing hempcrete, which is, you don't like smoke your wall or anything, but <laughs> It's made with like this stock of hemp, which is a very like, you know, renewable resource. And then with um, basically lime. And so that becomes a wall system, which is a really sustainable and awesome way to build a wall. And then we also do earthen plaster and earthen paint during those classes. So they're like aspects of natural building that you can do if you're starting from scratch, but you can also add the room I'm actually in right now is relatively conventionally built, but then it has earthen paint on the inside, which makes it look really um, just lovely and natural. It has straw and texture and mica. It's kind of shiny. It's, it's just, it's a really, it's a really cool thing. And we teach all of those things also in the online version. So there's like, there's like an online an online class that goes through all these different natural building techniques and how to do them and the pros and cons of the different natural building techniques. And we also talk about, there's this amazing woman, Danielle, who has her master's in architecture and has been doing carpentry for 20 years. And she talks about all the different systems and parts of a building. So there's like floor systems, walls, roofs, all the different types. And so each one of those is a different class within or a different lesson within the the online class. But the in-person tiny house class too, during COVID, we took all of the lecture content and put it online. And so that's what like got us going on this idea of doing an online tiny house class. But that's the cool thing about the in-person one too, which fills up. If you ever want to get into it, you have to like do it during our January sale because otherwise it's full. But it's really cool because then the full 10 days of the class can be dedicated to hands-on, which is cool. So I've got a split life, the like primitive life and then the Natalie, the power tool operator life. If you've been listening to my other podcast, Into the Backing, which by the way, you can find on iTunes, Spotify, basically wherever you get your podcasts, then you will know that I love to hide steep discounts and incentives in the episodes. These never see the light of day in show notes, social media, or Google, but they're yours for the taking as a loyal listener. I only make a handful of these discount codes to keep things exciting, so once they're gone, they truly are gone. With that said, I've made a limited amount of 50% off coupons that bring our high tanning class with Natalie to less than 100 bucks. This is a crazy discount. You will never find me publicly talking about this just simply because I don't like cheapening my brand, if we're being honest, but we're all friends here, so I don't mind doing it on the show. This is the most in-depth class that we offer, and I feel very confident saying that it is the best online tanning course on the internet. That's how good it is. Our students, myself included, have gone from not even knowing how to get a deer hide to sewing our own handmade buckskin into bags, fly reel covers, and more. 
As is the case with all of our classes, you'll also get an Anchored Outdoors premium membership, which is just packed with value. Go to the Masterclasses page at anchoredoutdoors.com and look for Natalie's class. From there, use code HIDETANNING50 at checkout. That's all one word, all lowercase, HIDETANNING50 at anchoredoutdoors.com. So what on earth happened over there? Because I'm just thinking about the poor bastard who tried to attack you with any sort of radical activism. What is the story? So um, I had given birth to my daughter at 37 years old, which is pretty epic. And then within a week and a half, I start getting death threats. In person? from online from my phone on your phone from my phone people calling me and apparently someone had posted my phone number and my email address and at a certain point my my physical address to all these animal rights pages and the animal liberation front actually which is like i don't know if you're familiar with the earth liberation front they like burned down a bunch of you know, things in like 20 years ago in the Pacific Northwest, but there's a, there's an animal liberation front. And at some point, this was the second year of all this, but they, the, the leader, I don't know if they really have leaders, but the the spokesperson said that any and all uses of property destruction, including arson would be appropriate to stop wild abundance from killing two sheep. And so the first time around, I had just given birth. A woman after giving birth is in this like totally altered state, just totally focused on nurturing and giving life. It's best to just like leave her alone so she can be calm. And instead I'm getting death threats and like people telling me that I have no right to be a mother because I'm doing all this and all of this because we're offering this humane slaughtering and butchering class about connecting with taking life in a sacred way and not associated with any particular religion or anything like that, but just being really present with taking life. Because there's a lot of people who eat meat who are like, oh, I could never kill an animal. I could never even like cut off the head of a fish, you know, but they're, but they're eating meat. And to me, I think if you're going to eat meat, it's important to know what goes into it. And we've actually had some people take the class only like one or two people over the years. We offered the class for like five years. And we started getting all this around it, I think, on year four. And I mean, they didn't know who they were messing with when it happened, because my partner also has some background in political action and stuff. And so when they attacked us, we just like put out all these press releases and we're just like, what are these people doing? Like, this is insane. Leave us alone. And it was pretty hardcore. And I think that, and it was really funny because on, um, on social media and in many different platforms, like all these vegans and vegetarians came out defending us, you know, because they're like, Hey, you know, if you're going to eat meat, this is the way to do it. And I mean, it's also ironic because I was vegetarian for 17 years before my body was like, you need some animal protein, girl. I decided when I was five years old, my mom told me where, where meat came from. She's like, you know, those cows down the road, they kill them and then they hang them up and then they cut off pieces of them. And that's what meat is, (laughs) which is true. And, um, 
and so I became vegetarian and was vegetarian until my young twenties. But, um, but yeah, at some point I was just like, wow, I am feel fat and I feel like I have no energy and not strong and I need something. <laughs> and the, the meat was super helpful, but anyway, yeah, it was just totally crazy. We moved the location of the class secretly and then had the class at an alternate location that was a couple miles down the road at a friend's farm. I mean, it's, it's important to me. I think, I think it's a really important skill that a lot of people don't know about. And that like the first time that I skinned an animal, it was a roadkill raccoon actually that I skinned in my early twenties. It's a pretty spiritual experience taking the skin off of this animal and realizing, oh wow, like especially a raccoon, it's kind of weird because they look almost human. And to just be so full of gratitude when you're taking life, you know, whether you're hunting or whether you're slaughtering a domesticated animal, it's just like to realize that that animal is giving you its life or you're taking it. But I mean, it's just amazing. And sometimes it really feels like a gift. Like one time I was hunting with my partner, um, my ex-partner up in near Boone and this deer just like walks towards us. <laughs> and it was my birthday. I think it was like my 25th birthday or something. And there's, a, I mean, I'm, I'm not that much of a hunter or a fisher woman, honestly, but I really, I really respect and appreciate that you are. And there's just moments where it's like, Oh yeah, this is the cycle of life. That is a prey animal. I am an omnivore and right now I'm a predator and this is just part of the dance. And it, it's just, I think a really beautiful thing. And I think that's just the thing with so much about life is when you add in gratitude it. And I mean, I think a lot of people, lots of different creeds can get on board with this, that gratitude just brings grace and brings so much appreciation and just like makes your life better. And I mean, what more gratitude can you have than for an animal that dies so that you can eat it? You know, gardening for me has been a big part of this whole harvesting my own food, killing my own food. Now that we've got this property, we've got obviously a beautiful garden sometimes, depending on if I do it right. But I think that was the biggest surprise for me when I started gardening was that every single, I always just thought you just put a bunch of seeds in and waited for things to happen, you know, add water and wait. I didn't realize that brassicas have different care than, you know, my carrots and everything and my peas and everything has its own formula. They need different the artichokes need something different to the asparagus. Some things take years. So I can definitely see how an, a class would be incredibly helpful. It gets tricky because there's so much online content out there. I know that your class is highly is highly praised. What about it is so helpful and beneficial rather than me just going on to YouTube? I hate when people, as an online, as someone who sells online classes, I hate when people ask me this, but I think that it's, it's a valid question that people might be asking themselves before signing up for a gardening class. So why take a gardening class and just not going to YouTube and going how to take care of carrots or beets? That is a very good question. And we actually have a testimonial on the online gardening school that talks about how the online gardening school has saved the person dozens and dozens of hours watching inaccurate and badly done. <laughs> yes 
YouTube videos full of misinformation. So that's, that's what they said. Um, and it's really from my research because we've been, Chloe and I are, are friends and run the online gardening school together. She's an amazing gardener and she also has a degree in agriculture and we've done some looking around and I can say that our online gardening school is the most comprehensive online gardening class in existence. And it's a pretty big deal. I mean, we pulled the trigger on it at the beginning of COVID because we were like, whoa, getting all these phone calls and all these people like being like, how do I feed myself? I don't know if the store is going to be open. And, you know, I'm really into wild foods and I'm really into perennial agriculture. But the thing is, is if you're going to, try to grow a bunch of your food and be self-sufficient or provide yourself with a bunch of your food. Gardening is a huge part of that. And the class that we've created is just incredible. I feel really, really proud of it. And there's a lot that goes into gardening and the class is appropriate for someone who is a total newbie. And the class is appropriate for someone who's been gardening for you know, eight years. Like we, we got another testimonial from a student that said who had been gardening for a while. And he said that this online gardening class, I feel like I've learned what I would learn in 12 years of reading books and trial and error, which felt really good to hear. And yeah, there's just, there's online Q and A's for support. And then the class itself is made up of, um, first there's, these foundational classes, which is like how to make compost, how to start a garden from grass, like all these very basic, really important Mm. things for beginners. And then there's bonus classes, like how to take a soil test and how to, um, I've always wanted to do, you're getting me so excited right now. I just stripped my entire, I've got three huge beds. I stripped them all with the exception of my asparagus, which probably never should have been in there. I mean, you're talking to someone who planted mint in her garden, so say no more. Okay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but it's stripped and I'm ready to start over. So you're getting me really, really excited because I'm going to take, I'm going to take the class. For sure. I'm going to sign you up for it, April, because it's, and then every month it's like goes through, there's a separate video you can watch about any vegetable that you might be growing because we cover like 22 vegetables, but we expect that people, especially if they're beginners, start with like five or something like that, you know? And so that way you can just watch what you need. And it's really like a library. And then there's the, there's the support. So I feel excited about you joining it because it's a really special offering. And I just feel excited about taking some of your classes too. I mean, there's a lot on there. So we'll do, I don't know. Do a swap in. Yeah. Nice. Let me know. I love it. Well, look, it's getting, it's getting dark there and you've got a babe or a child and family to take care of. There, there's, there are a million things about you that I'm sure I've missed. Um, I would love to sit down again once we've had time to share a whiskey and get to know each other better. Cause I'm sure that you've got stories for days, but in the meantime, is there anything that you would like to add or to ask me? I don't think so. I'm just so impressed with the work that you do. And I'm just so thankful that there's a woman who's doing the work that you do. It just feels really good for me being the mother of a daughter that you exist in the world. Oh, thank you. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Cool. Rock and roll. I'll, I'll include all the links so people can see where to find you. And, and, um, this will not be the last that we hear from you. I'm sure. Awesome. Sounds great. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening.
on Mondays. Head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! Oh! Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.